0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: NASA recently announced its latest selections to receive grants from its Innovative Advanced Concepts Program. This is one avenue researchers are able to get money for ideas that are sometimes requested and sometimes not. To learn more, I had a chance to speak with Dr. Michael LaPointe, who is the Acting NIAC Program Executive.
2: Well, NIAC itself is a a fairly unique program within NASA. Uh, We're looking 20 or 30 years down the road at the types of capabilities we'd like to have and kind of making those small seed investments now that, you know, could grow into those future capabilities. So the program actually started, let's see, back in about 1998, um, and it was formed as the NASA Institute for Advanced Concepts, and that was operated by, uh, I believe, USRA with NASA funding and directed by Bob Casanova back then. And unfortunately, you know, funding challenges within NASA and different priorities resulted in the institute closing back in 2007. Um, but I think NASA recognized the need to you know, really continue exploring those visionary ideas that you know could really could transform how we how we conduct our missions. So, in 2011, they reconstituted the current NIAC program, uh, and we renamed it the NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts Program to keep the keep the acronym and provide continuity with uh, the prior program. So. Uh, Just like the prior program, um, you know, our solicitations are pretty much open uh, to researchers at any U.S. or U.S. affiliated organization, um, academia, industry, small companies, other government agencies. Uh, The change from the prior NIAC is that we do also accept proposals from the NASA workforce. Um, There's a lot of passionate and creative people within NASA as well, so we didn't want to exclude them from participating. And let's see, organizationally, we're part of the NASA Space Technology Mission Directorate. And we fall under the Early Stage Innovation Partnerships Program that's led by Jen uh, Kostetic at NASA Headquarters.
1: So, obviously, you know, every job almost, you can say, is an innovative one in NASA. Um, but uh, well, tell me a little bit about your role and uh, what you do for the NIAC program.
2: Uh, well, as I mentioned, our, our program exec is on the developmental uh, opportunity detail. But as the acting PE, uh, basically what I do is... Uh, Work with a, a very experienced but small team uh, within NASA headquarters uh, to basically uh, work out the solicitations. Uh, you know, run the review panels, uh, select concepts, bring them forward to NASA for uh, their concurrence on selections, and then we basically uh, keep tabs on the on the projects. Um, and as they proceed down through their uh, development path, um, you know, we can fund additional uh, projects. Uh, to expand on that initial uh, feasibility study and hopefully develop technologies that will eventually be transitioned into NASA or other programs. So uh, basically, the, the types of projects we're looking for, uh, you know, in IAC, our focus is really on early stage feasibility studies of the, the concepts uh, proposed in a mission context to kind of help us decide if they could lead to significant achievements and advancements in our in our national capabilities. So. Um, so I mentioned we solicit uh, different concepts, and we, we basically solicit things in, in any field that might provide uh, a radically new approach or disruptive innovation that, you know, it could lead to a new science or exploration capability for NASA or for the for the nation. So again, we're looking about 20 years out, um, you know, we have other technology development programs within NASA that are a lot more near-term, so we're really looking to, to try to push those boundaries to identify those future capabilities
1: this latest round has about 12 projects and so out of you know those out of how many is is that from you know how many proposals do you get and and then we can get into the uh, process of selection after that question
2: (laughs) sure nope that's that's, that's a good question uh typically we get uh on the order of 200 uh, phase one proposals every year uh and those are solicited in two steps Uh, the first step step a is basically a short white paper where they provide us with the concept and the approach they're going to use uh, and from those, uh, you know, we do a compliance screening uh, and a screening for, to make, to make sure what they're proposing is feasible, uh, if it's within the bounds of physics. And then after that, we invite uh, proposals, uh, full proposals for phase one in a step B process. And typically we get about 100 to 110 step B phase one proposals, which are a lot more detailed. Um, and uh, from that, uh, you know, this year we selected 12. Uh, typically we try to shoot between 12 and 16 each year out of the 100 or so that we get uh, in terms of phase one proposals. Um, For phase two, if uh, you've successfully completed a phase one project, you're eligible to compete for a phase two proposal. And so typically we get about 25 to 30 phase two proposals every year based on prior phase one projects. And of those proposals, uh, we typically select uh, six, if possible. And then phase two proposals, if you complete a successful phase two proposal, you're eligible to compete for a phase three. Uh, which is a lot more detailed study. And we typically fund one of those each year.
1: Uh, What is, and to get in that phase one part, um, what is the Uh process for determining, you know, what an idea sounds good and and if it could actually work kind of thing, or, you know, is is it just whatever piques your interest or NASA's
2: needs? Uh, Well, in the solicitation, we actually list a whole slew of things that we're interested in funding. Um, So phase one studies, I'll I'll back up a little bit. Phase one are, are basically nine month kind of quick look efforts to verify whether the concept is even feasible and whether it is of interest to NASA, if, if it's gonna provide us a capability that we can't currently do, or that really enhances or enables future mission capabilities. Um, and if there are no showstoppers identified in phase one, then as I mentioned, the proposers can go on to submit a phase two award. And the phase two awards are more detailed two-year efforts and they really dig in to really determine the feasibility of the concept. And uh, at the end of phase two, and we really expect that concept to be sufficiently well-developed either, uh, to either attract other funding sources or in some rare instances to be proposed for the, for the phase three uh, study. And those phase three studies are again two-year efforts. Uh, they're funded up to about a million per year uh, to further develop the concept for transitioning into other programs or mission applications. And again, we only fund one new phase three each year. So these are extremely competitive. Uh, the phase one awards, uh, recently they've gone up to 175K per award And phase twos are 600K per award spread over the two year period.
1: All right, I've gotten uh, all my bureaucratic questions out of the way. Uh, so now, what can you tell me? <laughs> what can you tell me about the new uh, technologies? You know, without showing uh, favoritism or anything like that, uh, what are the uh, the new selections this year that, uh, or this round, I guess I should say that uh, you know you you find the most interesting, or or ones that you think might be uh, the the coolest to talk about? I guess.
2: <laughs> well, like like any good parent, we love all of our tribolenequels, and, and we want course. them all to um, <laughs> But uh, just to give you a flavor. You know, we, we did have 12 new uh, phase ones and five new phase two awards this year. And uh, we're actually in the process of receiving proposals for new phase three. But uh, just to give a flavor of the types of projects that we funded this year. Uh, for phase one, we're looking at uh, a method to manufacture custom spacesuits for astronauts that will be exploring Mars. And that study is led by a former astronaut, Bonnie Dunbar, out of Texas A&M. Uh, and what they're doing is looking at a process that can uh, digitally scan and 3D print custom suits for the astronauts. You know, currently the EVA suits that we're all familiar with from the old Apollo days, uh, they come in very limited sizes and they don't always provide the best fit for the crew members. And that can really lead to physical injuries over prolonged use. Uh, That's gonna be even more of a problem when we do uh, you know, deep space missions where the body shape can change over time when you're in a zero gravity environment or reduced gravity environment. Um, so those suits will be even less optimal at that point. So you know, it's, it's tough to have a, a very diverse crew and have maybe three or four suit sizes that are trying to fit everybody. Um, So what this approach would allow us to do is to design suits that are specifically tailored to fit the individual crew member, and then we can robotically 3D print them at the destination, uh, as well as printing replacement parts or updates to to really enhance our exploration capabilities once we get on planet. Uh, Let's see, we're funding a project from Johns Hopkins uh, that will investigate a combined uh, heat shield and solar solar thermal engine uh, in a single spacecraft that would fly very close to the sun and then they would use the Sunsea to really ramp up the propellant temperature uh, to get a really high escape velocity. And what they would do is allow you to cut the travel time uh, throughout the solar system to send science missions out, you know, to, to Pluto and the Kuiper Belt and into interstellar space. Uh, you know, we had the New Horizons spacecraft, which explored Pluto. Uh, that took about a decade to get out there with the fastest rocket we had at, at the time. This would allow you to get out there with a science instrument in a, in a year or two. So it's a really unique way of looking at uh, a new way to do propulsion and, and science for, for really deep space science missions.
1: Any uh, any famous alumnus uh, of this that the uh, to come from this program that is uh, now being heavily used by NASA, and not you know in, in many missions, or you know is a, a famous one that we all may know about.
2: Hmm. Let's see. Um, well, let's see. There's a, a prior NIA study that was led by JPL that looked at how uh, cubesats could be used for deep space missions. And that led to the NASA, the, the Mars Cube 1, or the, the MARCO mission, that deployed a couple CubeSats uh, on the way to Mars as part of the Mars InSight Lander mission. I don't know if your audience might be familiar with that. But uh, InSight, during its entry, descent, and landing on Mars, uh, was out of line of sight with the Earth. So these MARCO uh, CubeSats allowed a uh, real-time communication link between Earth and the uh, InSight Lander during that entry period. Uh, and it also demonstrated the first time the CubeSats could operate between beyond low Earth orbit. Um, uh, and demonstrating the use for, you know, really future deep space missions. Uh, we have another CubeSat coming up uh, called CATSAT, uh, which will be coming up this year, and that's a student-led mission out of Arizona. And uh, what they're looking at is deploying CubeSats with an inflatable spherical antenna to, as you know, CubeSats are very limited in power and transmission capabilities, and this would allow them to almost reach a 5G-type communication capability. So we're looking for that uh, this coming, uh, coming summer. I don't know if your audience is familiar with the Breakthrough Starshot project. Um, They're looking to send small science payloads out to Alpha Centauri and beyond. Uh, And way back when, NIAC had funded a study on beamed energy propulsion uh, that led to that current approach being used by the Breakthrough Starshot project. Uh, That's going to be looking at ground or space based lasers to send these very small science probes into interstellar space space and out to the the next star system. Let's see. um, I think probably our. uh, one of the ones that, that you guys may be familiar with uh, from the recent business news is we we funded an advanced con- propulsion concept uh, that looked at colliding and compressing plasmas to achieve uh, fusion-like temperatures, which was the genesis for the investigators to actually form a commercial company that is now developing a terrestrial fusion power system, and they recently received 500 million in private investments to con- continue its development. So, so we've got a lot of projects that go on to successful ventures in different areas. Uh, We've also had a lot of projects that just ended with phase one, uh, which is okay, that expanded our understanding of of these potential future capabilities as well, and and what it would take to get there beyond that. So
1: Yeah, I'm I'm curious, you mentioned when uh, this program got, I guess we could call it restarted or whatever you want to describe (laughs) it as Um, it now expanded from research institutions to actual NASA employees. Uh, And I'm just, you know, curious on how that all went down. And, you know, is there the possibility of expanding into even more fields in the future or anything like that?
2: So, um, Actually, since, since we restarted back in 2011, it turns out, not, not by design, um, but about a third of our funding goes to uh, industry, about a third of it goes to academia, and about a third of it goes internal to NASA. So it's an interesting split between the different uh, organizations that propose. Um, and, and again, that wasn't by design, but keeping statistics, that's just kind of how it turned out over time. Uh, which is nice um you know since 2011 we've actually funded about you know, a little over 180 phase one proposals and uh, about 75 phase two proposals and so these these really s- cover the cover the spectrum of of things from propulsion to life science to biology to astropharmacies uh, to new ways to do observations in space new types of telescope designs I and mean, we, we really do cover the gamut of things that that could potentially enhance future nasa missions so we're not really limited in, in what we're looking at in that sense.
1: My final question, just out of my own curiosity, has an has idea ever come across your desk where you all kind of look at each other and go, what are they talking about? <laughs> yep.
2: <laughs> yeah, we do actually. Uh, you know, we have a pretty good, in phase one, we have a fairly good screening system uh, with sufficient uh, background in physics and engineering that you know we, we, we know the ones that are, you know, like the, the warp drives or the wormholes that, you know, technically may be physically possible, but it would take like the GDP of the United States to make them work or you know the, the amount of negative energy that you would need that really you know anyway there, there are those types of proposals that are pretty easy to, to put to the side in that it would be fascinating science but it really is science fiction at this point and and we really can't fund things that are over that, that line we do want to push that boundary to science fiction but we don't want to step over it. you know we want these things to be to be feasible and, and technically realistic. Um, there are other proposals that come in that we don't have the background to review. And those are the proposals, but all the proposals go to review panels. Uh, so I should mention a little bit about the process. Uh, when you submit a phase one proposal, um, we set up uh, a series of review panels. And typically, we have three to four review panels uh, to look at the phase one proposals. We kind of categorize them by uh, how, they're, how they're been by uh, like propulsion or science or robotics or you know, human habitats, things like that. And then we get experts in the field to sit on these review panels for us and uh, and actually do a really deep dive into what's being proposed to make sure we select uh, not only proposals that are feasible, but proposals that really have a shot at at leading to a really advanced technology and a a new capability for NASA. So all of our proposals are reviewed uh, by uh, really sharp individuals on these peer review panels. Mike
1: Lapointe is professional dream crusher at NASA, I guess.
2: Uh, yeah, we, we really do encourage folks to apply. Um, the only the only uh, constriction is that you do need to be a U.S. citizen or affiliated with U.S. organization. Uh, but we really are looking for for really far-term concepts. Uh, they can come from garage inventors to universities to other government agencies. We're, we're looking across the board and across all types of inventors to, to get us some, some ideas coming forward. Um, I would mention that we also have a website. Uh, if you do a search on NASA, NIAC, N-I-A-C, it'll take you to our homepage and we have all of the studies that have been funded listed there, including the current set of, of uh, studies. And so your, your audience can take a look at all the things we funded in the past and the types of things we're, we've looked at. Uh, a lot of those uh, final reports for the phase one and phase two studies are posted as well. Uh, we're going through a 508 compliance uh, right now to make sure all the reports are, are available uh, to everyone. And so as they get uh, get compliance checked, we'll get those posted as well. Uh, we also have a symposium every year uh, in the September time frame, where we bring all the fellows together to talk about the research, all the current fellows together. And uh, that's held uh, over a two-day period. This year it's going to be held in Tucson, Arizona, uh, and also live streamed. And uh, the registration site for that, is, it's free registration. Uh, you're welcome to, to come and attend or to listen virtually by live stream. But uh, that registration information is also on the NIAC website, and so uh, you're welcome to Welcome to peruse through there and take a look at the different studies we funded as uh, well as upcoming events.
0: To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold?